Good morning. I want to welcome everyone to our services this morning. And uh, what a beautiful day to be out and a beautiful day to be in the Lord's house. And uh, I'd like to welcome uh, Mark and June. We haven't seen them for a little while. And I'd like to welcome them and their, and their family. And uh, just want to make sure everyone, uh, make sure you all get to say hi to them and their, and their new little one. <clears throat> uh, do we have any, we don't really have any announcements in particular in the uh, bulletin here this morning. Uh, are there any announcements that need to, uh, that need to be made this morning that didn't make it in the bulletin? Ah, yes. Wonderful. And how was food pantry yesterday? Slow. Well, that's, that's a good thing on one hand. That, that people don't need it, but uh, we appreciate all the hard work of those that, that were there. Yes, Donna. Jeff and Denise said to say hi to everybody and to tell everyone that they miss us. Mm. I was going to say they appear to be having a good time. Yeah, they are. All right, and I uh, just want to make mention uh, of our Easter services coming up. We're going to be uh, preparing some... Uh, little invitations and we're also planning on uh, sending uh, invitations to all of the uh, residents of Liberty and Montville and uh, and we're also going to be doing invitations that uh, you can hand out so be in in prayer for that as uh, as Easter comes around the corner and be in prayer for that that uh, that we might have a few people that come uh, that don't ordinarily and so uh, be in prayer for that all right, well, let's go to the Lord this morning <clears throat> in prayer. Our dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we can come here to worship you in, in your house. We thank you for this beautiful sunny day that you have given to us. We pray that you would watch over our service this morning. We pray that you would help us to open our ears and open our eyes, and that you would help us to learn from your word today. And we pray that you would help us to be more like you each and every day. We pray that you would watch over those that are not able to be here this morning. We think of Dean and Beth and others that are not able to be here this morning for one reason or another. We, we pray that... Uh, uh, if it's from illness, we pray that uh, you would heal their bodies, uh, and we pray that you would just bring them back to us safely. We just thank you for your word. It says in there that your word is quick and powerful, and it's able to guide us and direct us in our lives, and we pray that you would help us to be in your word today and every day, uh, that we might grow in our faith. We pray that you'd watch over Ian this morning as he brings the message. We pray that your Holy Spirit would guide him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. <clears throat> Our call to worship this morning is found, will be on the back of your bulletin, Psalm 23. And if you'd like to stand with me, we will then go and uh, sing uh, number 576 in the blue book. So if you'd like to stand with me, we will read responsively on the back of the bulletin, Psalm 23. 
The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. And if you turn with me to number uh, 576, the steadfast love of the Lord. And let's sing that through a couple of times. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. Great is thy faithfulness. The steadfast of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. Great is thy faithfulness. Amen. And if you would turn now to number 78, I love you, Lord. Amen. Number 78, and let's sing that through a couple of times as well. <clears throat> forward for the morning offering, please. Matt? 
Amen. <clears throat> Our scripture reading this morning will be found in, in Ezekiel chapter 34, and it'll be starting in verse 11. Ezekiel chapter 34, starting with verse 11, and does anybody have the page number for that? For the, what number? 648. I had another, thought I had another number up here, so 648, I believe. Six seventy-six. Okay, six seventy-six. I don't know. Mine says eight fifty-eight. So, there you have it. All right. Ezekiel, chapter thirty-four, verse eleven. <clears throat> For thus says the Lord God: Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out, as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I judge between sheep, between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pasture? and to drink of clear water that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet? And must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, behold, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep because you pushed with side and shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad. I will rescue my flock, and they shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I am the Lord God, I am the Lord, I have spoken. I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them 
and the places all around my hill a blessing, and I will send down the showers in their season. They shall be showers of blessing. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield its increase, and they shall be secure in their land. And they shall know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hand of those who enslaved them. They shall no more be a prey to the nations, nor shall the beast of the land devour them. They shall dwell securely, and none of them shall none of them shall make them afraid. And I will provide for them renowned plantations, so that they shall no more be consumed with hunger in the land, and no longer suffer the reproach of the nations. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my peoples, declare the Lord God. And you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture, and I am the Lord, and I am your God, declares the Lord God. Amen. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word today. And if you'll turn to number 375, We'll sing, Jesus Shall Reign, number 375. We'll stand and sing. Do I know that song? Ah, yes. Sing all four verses. that's kind of a new one to us, but you did a good job. Uh, we're going to take a moment now to go to the Lord together in prayer. Okay. 
Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Our Father and our God, as we come to you this morning, we come with our eyes fixed on Jesus, who we trust and we believe is seated at your right hand. And we look to him because we know he is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. We look to him who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. We look to him who died, <clears throat> who more than that was raised. We look to him who is at the right hand of God. We look to you, Lord Jesus, you who even now are interceding for us. We look to one who is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. And so as we come to you, Father, looking at Jesus, we come with confidence to draw near to the throne of grace. We come to you, Lord Jesus, our glorious, humble, mighty, and sympathetic Savior. And we come with, with bold assurance, trembling assurance, that, that from you we can find mercy and grace and help in time of need. We know, Father, that as we come into your presence, that to you all hearts are open, that to you all desires are known, that from you no secrets are hid, that in the light of your presence we can hide nothing. And so as we come to you, we, we want to speak the truth about our sins, to acknowledge and to lament our sins against you. We confess that we're sinners, and we want to confess, Lord, that we're deeply sorry for our sins. That when we begin to understand fully the reality of our sin and of your holiness, on our own, the burden of our sins is more than we can bear. And so as we come to you this morning, looking to Jesus, we throw ourselves on your mercy. And we ask, Father, that you would have mercy on us that for the sake of your Son, our Lord Jesus, that you would forgive us all that is past and grant that we would be able to serve you and please you in newness of life to the glory of your name. Let's take a moment now to silently confess our sins to God. Hear the word of God to all who truly turn to him. From John 1, if, 1 John 1, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the assurance that we have that if we confess our sins unto you, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What freedom we find in the cross. We ask, Father, that you'd watch over and protect us, that uh, you'd guard our hearts from the lures of the world, the flesh, and the devil. We ask, Lord, that you protect us from false teaching, from heresy, and from schism. 
We ask, Lord, that you keep us from hardness of heart to your word, that you'd keep our hearts soft to what you would have us to, to believe and to do from your word. We ask that you give us hearts to love and to fear you, to love your word and to love your commandments. We ask that you'd watch over all those who are in authority over us, president, congress, legislators, governor, selectmen, judges on all levels, that you'd give them hearts to fear you, that they would do justice and show mercy and walk humbly before you. We ask that you'd grant revival to our nation. We pray that you would grant us the gift of repentance for our sins. Pray that you would give the people of our nation eyes to see the sins which are tolerated and celebrated on every street corner, that we would turn back to you. We pray for an outpouring of your spirit in our generation. We pray for revival. We pray for revival in our church. We pray that you would grow us, that you'd give us spiritual life by your spirit that we would grow in, in our repentance for our sins, that you would give us grace by your Holy Spirit to live more and more according to your word, that, that our love for your word would abound more and more, that we would be a people marked out by our joy in knowing you, that our hearts would overflow with the wonder of what it is to know you and to know your forgiveness. We pray, Lord, that you'd pour out your spirit in the hearts of our friends and our neighbors, those who are far from you, that you would save them and draw them to yourself, that they would come to a saving faith in Jesus. Lord, we're, we're lost without you. We cannot do anything apart from you, and so we ask for your help. We plead with you, Lord, that you would pour out your spirit. I ask for those who are here this morning that you would strengthen those who stand that you would encourage the faint-hearted, that you would raise up those who fall. We ask you, Lord, that you'd watch over us this morning, that you'd speak to us from your word, that you'd inhabit the praises of your people. We praise you and we thank you, Father, that we can come to you in Jesus' name, looking to the one seated at the right hand in boldness and in confidence as your children, your sons and daughters. And it's in, it's in the name of this mighty Savior we pray. Amen. Let's pray like Jesus taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. And you can stand and open your green books to number 211, Ancient of Days.
217 now. 217. Lord, from sorrows deep I call when my hope is shaken. So long I pled and prayed, God come to my rescue. Even so the thorn remains, still my heart will praise you. Storms within my troubled soul, questions without answers. 
my faith these billows roll. God be now my shelter. Why are you cast down my soul? Hope in him who saves you. When the fires have all grown cold, cause this heart to praise you. You can open your Bibles with me this morning to Genesis chapter 33. Genesis 33 is where we're going to be this morning. We're continuing our series through the book of Genesis. We've been taking it one chapter at a time. And I want to start this morning by asking a question. And that is, when was the last time you were in a good argument? When was the last time you were in a good argument, a good fight? Donna says, not since Herman died. But by a good fight, by a good fight, I, I, mean a, I mean a conflict that ended well. I mean something that you worked through and you, the truth came out and at the end there was reconciliation and peace. When was the last time you had a good fight? And then on the other, on the other hand, I could ask you, when was the last time you had a bad fight? And by that I mean a fight that ended poorly, a fight that ended with conflict and strife still there. 
and a lot unresolved. And the question I want to ask this morning is, what's the, what makes the difference between a good fight and a bad fight? What's, um, what is it that gets in the mix of a conflict? Because conflicts happen, right? They're going to happen. They're going to happen in marriages. They're going to happen in families and amongst friends. What makes the difference between one that ends well and one that ends poorly? Or put another way, what are the ingredients needed for real reconciliation? Right? Forgiveness, certainly. I think we could, we could make a list of things needed for real reconciliation, right? Um, but I want to focus on one this morning, and that's humility. Humility. Humility is a key ingredient in the mix for real reconciliation. Humility. And we're going to see that played out in the story of a man named Jacob, right, who we've been following. And if you were paying attention last week, you'll know this is now the second week we've been talking about humility in Jacob's life. Right, so last week we were in Genesis 32, and Jacob was preparing to meet his brother Esau, which was pretty nerve-wracking for him, because he hadn't seen Esau in 20 years, and the last time he saw Esau, Esau wanted to kill him, because right, he'd stolen Esau's birthright and blessing, and Esau was pretty mad about it. And so now they're, they're going to meet again, and Jacob's terrified because he hears wind that Esau's coming out with, and he's not just alone, he's coming out with 400 fighting men, right? And Jacob's afraid of what might happen. So last week we looked at how in the midst of that fear, Jacob humbled himself in terms of trusting God, okay? acknowledging his weakness, and, and running to God for help. This week we're going to look at humility, but from a different kind of angle. This week we're going to see how Jacob, Jacob shows he's humbled himself not just before God, but also before his brother Esau, Okay? Both Jacob and Esau are going to show a large measure of humility. And the result is real reconciliation. This is, Genesis 33 is one of the more beautiful chapters, maybe in all of Scripture, in terms of giving us a picture of what it looks like for, for two people who are at each other actually to reconcile and to be restored to right relationship. So my prayer is that as we look at this, that we would be equipped to humble ourselves towards the end of real reconciliation, not only with the people around us, but also with God. Okay? And by the end of it, we'll actually see how God has humbled himself to reconcile with us. Genesis 33. We'll, we'll read it and then we'll pray. Genesis 33, beginning in verse 1. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming. And 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front. Then Leah and her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? And Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. And the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. 
And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we ask your blessing over us this morning as we come to your word, that you would open our minds and our hearts to understand your word, to understand what you would have to teach us here, but not only to understand it in our minds, to believe it with our hearts and to live it out with our lives. We know your word is living and active. It's sharp. And we trust as we come to it this morning that you, by your Holy Spirit, will do surgery on our hearts this morning. You'll open us up, humble us where we need humbling, Lord. Convict us where we need convicting. Encourage us where we need encouragement. And in all things, show us Jesus. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Okay. Our, our main idea this morning has to do with humility. Okay. Humility is a key ingredient towards real reconciliation. Okay. Humility is a key ingredient towards real reconciliation, and we're going to see that humility on display, actually both in Jacob and in Esau. So the passage begins with Jacob looking up towards the horizon and seeing a potentially terrifying sight, (laughs) right? There's Esau up on the horizon. He looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. And Jacob was somewhat prepared for this. The messengers had told us, had told him, Your brother's coming, you know, your brother who wanted to kill you the last time you saw him, and he's coming with 400 men. This is more people than you really need for a welcoming party, right? This is potentially threatening, okay? You could do a lot of damage with 400 men against a group of women and children and animals. And we saw last week that Jacob was quite afraid at this prospect. But in any case, Jacob lifts up his eyes and he sees, there's Esau, And so he divides out his family, he divides them into groups, and this is a plan he'd hatched, we read about this in the last chapter. He divides his family up into groups so that if Esau were to attack, they're not all going to be attacked at once. And notice what he does, verse 3, we read that he himself went on before them. And this, I want to argue, is a change for Jacob. Last week we looked at this incredible scene of Jacob wrestling with God, and And throughout these chapters, a lot of attention is paid to the arrangement of of this encampment, who's going in front of who and all this kind of thing. And the previous night when Jacob was wrestling God, where was Jacob in terms of his wagon train? Way at the end, right? He literally sent everyone over the river towards Esau, and he was at the back, right? I think there's something symbolic about this, right? He was hanging about, he was afraid, And there he wrestled with God all night. God sapped him of his strength and left him with nothing nothing else but to cling on to God, right? And to say, I won't let you go until you bless me. You're all I have left, right? And his, his hip is put out of joint. 
And so on this morning, as the sun is rising in the east, and Jacob sees Esau there to the south, he's limping towards Esau, right? Limping, not at the back of his wagon train, right at the front, leading the way, boldly, with great weakness, marching towards Esau, right? Weak in his own strength, but trusting in God, right? He's, he's out there at the front. He's bold. This is a boldness in Jacob that is relatively new in terms of these last two chapters. He went on before them, but not just in boldness, in humility, and that's what we're focusing on, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. You can picture the scene, right? Here's Jacob limping forward, right? And he's got all his people behind him, but he's, he's like he's out in front, and I don't know just how far, but he's out in front, this lone figure approaching his brother with all his, all, all the king's horses and all the king's men, right? And, and Jacob, when he gets to a certain point, stops, and being literally physically spent, right? This man has almost no strength left, and he's, he's almost handicapped, you know, from his leg. Goes through the labor of getting down on the ground and prostrating himself, bowing before his brother, right? And then he gets back up and he walks a few paces forward and he does it again. Seven times he bows before his brother. And this is how Jacob chooses to begin this interaction with his brother. Why does he do that and what does it mean? It's really significant that Jacob does this. Let's think back to when this conflict all began. The, The spark that lit off this conflict was when Jacob stole his brother's blessing. He deceived his father into thinking he was Esau, right? And so when Isaac gave the blessing, thinking he was blessing Esau, he actually put his hand on Jacob and gave the blessing to Jacob. And when he gave the blessing to Jacob, do you remember, do you remember what he said about bowing? This is significant. He, Isaac says something about bowing, right? He says, I'm going I'm to bless you and your brothers will bow before you. He thinks he's blessing Esau and saying, you're going to be the greatest of of your brothers and God's going to bless you and your brothers, you're going to be so great, your brothers are going to bow to you, right? But he's not actually putting his hand on Esau, he's putting his hand on Jacob, right? And remember when they find all this out and Esau says, well, why don't you, can't you just do take backs, right? Why don't you take back the blessing and give it to me? And Isaac says, no can do. I've blessed your brother and he will be blessed. So the blessing that rests upon Jacob is that his brothers will bow to him. That's the blessing he'd wrestled, he'd stolen from his brother. And now as he comes before his brother, does he say, bow to me, brother, I'm blessed of God? No. He doesn't assume a position of superiority. He doesn't assume a position of equality. He doesn't come to his brother saying, Oh, brother, it's good to see you. He doesn't call him brother once. What's he call him? Lord, again and again throughout this chapter. He assumes a position actually of supplication and of humility. He lowers himself, literally, physically lowers himself before his brother. He humbles himself. 
And just on, the, just on the most surface level of what this means, I think this should teach us that there is wisdom in lowering ourselves when we're in conflict with another. You get two people coming into a conflict, coming into a fight, coming into an argument, and both of them are trying to kind of exalt themselves, and they're both really about making sure that they come out of this looking good. That's not going to end well for anyone. You're not actually going to get to the point of real reconciliation. If you, if you come to an argument, come to a fight, come to a conflict, where, where both parties are actually lowering themselves and humbling themselves and willing to not, be, not come out first, then you have a recipe for real reconciliation. Okay. That's sort of just the surface level implication of this. But I think there's more going on here. Because Jacob's bowing, and this is highly significant because that's the very blessing that he was given, right? Jacob's whole aim for all of his childhood years was to try and be better than Esau who came out of the womb just a couple, couple minutes earlier, right? He can't be that much better, right? He's trying to unseat his brother who's older and so has more honor and is supposed to receive the blessing, The whole reason for this conflict is that Isaac had deceived and lied and cheated in order to bring his brother from his, down from his position of honor and to put himself in that place. And so now as he moves towards reconciliation, what does he do? The exact opposite. Right? He doesn't insist on being great. He exalts his brother. Right? He actually puts himself in the position of humility and honors his brother in a way that he never had before. And so I think in bowing, Jacob is actually showing Esau his repentance. I think in bowing, Jacob is saying, I honor you, brother. I honor you, brother. And tacit, implicit in all of this is, I'm sorry. He's humbling himself to the place of repentance. And this, too, is a key ingredient in terms of reconciliation. If you've got a conflict where one person has sinned against another, or two people have sinned against each other, which is usually more often the case, rarely do you have one person who's entirely blameless. Um, you're not going to get much of anywhere if no one's willing to repent. If no one's willing to acknowledge that they've done wrong and that they need to change and that they need forgiveness. You may be able to paper it over, right? You may be able to leave sort of smiling and laughing. Right? Um, but if there's sin between two people and there's no real repentance, that root of bitterness isn't going anywhere. It's, it's going to rear its ugly head eventually. So it's worth asking ourselves, in the last bad conflict that you had, where it didn't end well. Were you humbly repentant? Were you willing to acknowledge your sin, say it out loud? Were you actually coming to the table desirous to change, willing to say, yeah, I messed it up and I need to change. I've gotta, be, I've gotta become a different person.
Jacob humbles himself. But Jacob's not the only one showing humility here. Jacob bows. And as Jacob bows, you can imagine. We're not told much about what's going on in Esau's heart and mind. We're not given the details. The passage really is more about Jacob than about Esau. All we're told about Esau is what he did. Right? And what does he do? Verse 4, Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And this would have been a, this is a standard greeting for a brother. Right? This, is, this is what a brother does to a brother whom he loves. Notice what Esau doesn't do, and this is humility. Esau doesn't say, well, 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 Jake the snake, you stole the blessing and now you're back. I wondered when you'd, when you'd rear your ugly head. He doesn't say, well, Jake, you know I ought to kill you, but I think I'll, I think I'll be nice. He doesn't say, well, you know, if I, get, I, if I gave you what, I, of what you deserved, here's, here's what I'd do. Right? And he doesn't say, yeah, that's right, Jake, grovel at my feet. I'm the older brother. That's not what he does. He doesn't, that's sort of hyperbolic. He doesn't even say, yes, Jacob, you're right to confess your sins, and I forgive you. No. What does he do? He runs, and he hugs him, and he weeps. He doesn't play the victim. He doesn't make it about himself. He doesn't take this opportunity to exalt his pride and how he's been offended. He humbly just runs and embraces and forgives. This, too, is humility. This, too, is humility. Humility isn't just found on the repentance side. It's also found on the forgiveness side. Right? And even in the way he runs, right? Jacob shows his humility by his kneeling, his bowing. Esau shows his humility by the way he hikes up his skirts. Right? G given the choice of apparel of men at the time, he, he's going to have to literally to hike up his robes to run. Right? And this is, this is undignified. Right. This is not what a Near Eastern potentate does. Right. This is not what you do if you want to be seen as sort of regal and put together. You don't run. That's, that's kid stuff. Right. And Esau runs. Right. Runs to embrace his brother. It's a beautiful picture. So it's worth asking us the question. Right? Let's ask ourselves the question. When we're in the position of being the one who has to forgive, do we do it humbly? Do we take the opportunity to air our grievances once again? Yes, you're right to confess. Yeah, I've been sinned against grievously. Right. Or do we forgive? Open the door and say, I love you. Verses 5 and 6, we read about how after this embrace, Jacob then brings all his family before. It's kind of a tender scene, right? Esau's, Esau says, who are these with you? Let me meet your family. And so he brings his, all of his family, all of his kids, and 
wives forward, and they bow too. Okay, the bowing doesn't stop with Jacob. They all bow, and obviously Jacob's carefully orchestrated this, right? He's making a point even with his family, right, of this sort of humble repentance before his brother. And then Esau asks in verse 8, what do you mean by all this company that I met? And here he's not referring to his family. He's referring to the gifts that Jacob had sent ahead. Right? And we haven't encountered these so, so far yet in these first verses of 33. But we read about them in 32 last week. Right? Part of Jacob's plan in meeting his brother was that ahead of the family and ahead of Jacob himself, we're going to go a bunch of animals. We read about them, this whole list, right? Cows and goats and sheep and just a great amount of wealth in terms of, uh, in terms of this time and culture. Your wealth is not so much in money, it's in your animals, right? And Jacob sends it all ahead, and he sends servants with it to say, this is a gift from Jacob, and he's coming. You'll meet him soon, right? And with each flock that went, the servant said, this is another gift from Jacob. He's behind us. He's coming soon. And so Esau asks the question, and I think this is, I think he knows the answer because he's been told by the servants what the purpose of these, these gifts is. Um, but he asks anyways because he wants to hear it from Jacob. He wants to hear it from the horse's mouth. What do you mean by all this company that I met? What are all these flocks doing? He probably points over to him, right? Over there are all those flocks and servants you sent ahead. What's the, what's the deal, Jacob? And Jacob explains, he says, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. Now, a surface-level reading might, might cause us to guess, oh, so this is like a bribe. He's just sort of greasing the wheels a little bit. He's, he's, buttering, he's buttering Esau up. And maybe that, was, maybe that was part of the logic. He doesn't know exactly what to expect in terms of Esau's reaction. Right? He's not going into this taking for granted that Esau is going to hug him and embrace him. But Jacob explains the purpose of these, these gifts and and what he explains is that this is, this is deeper than a mere bribe. Jacob says, it's to find favor in the sight of my Lord. And Esau says, well, no, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Don't worry about it. It's, what's a few flocks between you and me? But, he's, but Jacob insists, right? He says, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and I have enough. He insists on it. Please take this. And the language he uses here, and this is something that isn't necessarily obvious in the English translation, but the, the Hebrew words that are translated accept and present this is temple sacrificial language. Okay? These are words that are used in terms of the people of God offering sacrifices to God to atone for their sins. When, he, when he's saying, please accept these gifts, please accept me, he's actually using the same language that the people of God use when they talk about bringing sacrifices before God so that they might be accepted before God. Or in other words, this is atonement language. Jacob has a sense that in giving these gifts, in a way, he's trying to atone for his sins. Now, he can't do so perfectly, right? We said earlier the blessing is irrevocable. Jacob can't actually give the blessing back, but he does his best, right? Verse 11, he uses the word, verse 11, please accept my blessing, 
right? He says, God has blessed me. This is the blessing that I stole from you. Please accept it. Please take it back. Now, obviously, he can't actually give it back, but he can give back some of what he's received. And he gives it back with the aim that he would be accepted. He says, please accept this because you're accepting me. And in insisting that Esau actually take it, he's insisting, Esau, I want, you to, I want you to actually put your signature on this. I actually want you to seal, to sort of contractually agree, you've forgiven me by taking all of this. That this actually sort of, in a sense, atones for my sins. There's a lot to unpack there. But that's the language. That's what the language seems to indicate. Even where he says, I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. So, a couple of implications. One implication, just very sort of practically and in earthy terms, if you've sinned against someone and you've actually sort of taken something from them, it's a biblical principle to pay it back. And usually to pay it back with interest. Okay, this, is, this is a biblical principle. Jacob can't actually give the whole blessing back but he gives a token, he gives something. In, in the Old Testament civil, civil code, um, it, it's pretty explicit, right? If you kill someone's animal, you've gotta give them the price for it. Right? If you break it, you buy it. You borrow someone's tool and you break it, buy them a new one, right? Or even Zacchaeus, right? When he comes to Jesus and repents of his sins, what does he pledge to Jesus? Uh, if I've stolen anything, I'm gonna give it back fourfold. Right? I'm gonna do my best to make things right. We can't actually patch up all the damage our sin does, but it's a biblical obligation to do our best. Okay. That's a very sort of just surface level application. But I, I can't help but take this passage and then, and then apply it to our relationship with God because the, the, the implications are just, it's just so on the surface. All of this, this atonement language, accept my blessing, He's repenting of his sin, right? But he's also trying to make atonement. And I want us to see that Jacob, in humbling himself before Esau and seeking forgiveness from Esau and then being reconciled, is actually in many ways a picture of what it looks like for us to be reconciled to God. And once you start trying to make the connections, it's just the whole thing just breathes with it, right? That God, I think God has given us this as a picture even of, of how we're to be reconciled with God. What does he mean when he says, I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God? How was seeing Esau like seeing God? Remember, it wasn't that long ago that Jacob saw God, right? He was wrestling with him on the riverside the night before. So what are the similarities? I think there's at least two. One is that seeing the face of God like seeing the face of Esau was quite fearful at first. The second, that seeing the face of God like seeing the face of Esau eventually resulted in great blessing. Right. Seeing the face of God can be a quite fearful thing, quite a fearful thing. When we first turn back to God, it can feel a lot like looking up at the hillside and seeing a great man who we've sinned against with an army around him. When we first begin to get a conception of what it is, who it is that we are as sinners, 
what it means that we've sinned against a holy God. It's more than just that we've dishonored our older brother. We realize we've sinned against our creator, our maker, that we've sinned against a holy God, and this is a far more serious thing. And, and our holy and mighty God is far stronger than Esau and 400 men. And so it can be a terrifying thing to realize that by our sin, we've actually put ourselves on the wrong side of a holy God. This is why Adam and Eve hide in the garden, right? As soon as they've sinned and God shows up, where are they? Nowhere to be seen as far as they're able to be, right? They're hiding, they're terrified. And this is actually what we still do today. We're God avoiders. We're afraid of God's presence because we know deep down on some level that we're sinners and we've alienated ourselves from a holy God. And so then the, well, really the most important question for every human being to answer is, well, how can that be resolved, right? Is there some way I could be reconciled with my brother up the hill? Is there some way that I could actually be reconciled with God, right? And where does the hope come for Jacob that he can be reconciled to Esau? Because it's nice to imagine, right, that, that when we come to God that he'll embrace us, that he'll accept us, that we'll be in his family. But it's like, well, how can we have assurance of that? Why, why is God obligated to do that? We're sinners. Why would he do that? And the hope is that the atonement has gone before us. The hope is that flocks and herds have gone up the hill. This atonement is a kind of a, a sad attempt at atonement. It doesn't actually cover the depth of, of his sin. But if we've actually come to understand and believe the gospel, what we understand is that God has actually provided for us a perfect atonement, a perfect sacrifice that God has actually provided for himself in the person of his son, perfect covering for all our sins in the person of Jesus Christ. So that when we go up the hill to God, we don't have to be afraid that he's going to unleash fury because the price has been paid. It's been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is the hope of the gospel, right? And this is why Jesus, in the parable of the prodigal son, says when a repentant sinner comes and bows seven times, right? What can we expect from our heavenly father? That he'll do just as Esau did, right? The parable of the prodigal son, a number of scholars have pointed out the language there about the, the father hiking up his skirts and running and embracing his son. It's the same language used here. That, that in using that language, Jesus is actually kind of referencing this picture as a picture of what reconciliation with God looks like. Right? That we can have the assurance that when we come to our Heavenly Father for forgiveness, the price has been paid, and, and that when we come to Him, He'll already be running down the road towards us. Right? <laughs> with His robe in His hands. 
right, ready to embrace us and weep with joy that his son or daughter is home. That's the gospel. That's our hope. So, a couple of questions. Do you believe that? Right? Have you run up the hill? I want to encourage you. If you're stuck at the bottom wondering if arrows are going to be unleashed, fear not. Jesus says, come unto me. Right? The promise of Christ is that all who come to him, he will never turn away. You go to the Father and he will embrace you. Run, run, run. Don't let anything hold you back. And go with humility. Don't go presumptuously. Repent of your sins and believe the gospel. Right? Bow before your God and receive the grace of Christ. And then the second encouragement for those of us who are Christians. Do our lives proclaim the reconciling love of God with the kind of volume and clarity that Jacob and Esau's story does here? doesn't take too long into this story before you just see Jesus, the grace of God, popping off the page. The Apostle Paul speaks about the church as, as having been given the ministry of reconciliation. We as Christians are in the business of telling everyone around us, be reconciled to God. You can run up the hill. He will embrace you. Go, be reconciled to God. This is our job, to proclaim the reconciling love of God. But not only to proclaim it, also to display it. As Christians, we should be the best people in the world at real confession, honest, humble repentance, and wholehearted forgiveness. And the way we argue, the way we f fight, our spouses, our friends within the church should say a lot about the grace of Jesus Christ. Key ingredient to reconciliation is humility. It's humility we see in Jacob and Esau. It's humility that, Lord willing, we've shown before God in coming to him. It's humility that Jesus has shown in humbling himself to become a man and to take on our sins and to bear the cross and to die and bear our shame. And it's humility that by God's grace, we will learn a little more day by day, every day the rest of our lives, so that God willing, when we go to be with him, he may be able to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Your life has been a picture of the grace of Jesus. May it be so. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word, and we're thankful for the, the wonderful gospel which we have heard and believed. We praise you and we thank you, Lord Jesus, for your death for sinners, 
for the perfect atonement that you have offered, that we might be forgiven. We praise you. We thank you, Father, for welcoming us with open arms into your family, making us sons and daughters, and seating us with Christ. What an incredible, incredible blessing you've given to us. Please, Father, help our lives to be shaped by this good news that in our confession, in our forgiveness, in our repentance, in our going, in our staying, in our getting up, in our sleeping, in our waking, in our working, that in everything we do, our lives would be shaped by the gospel of Jesus and that this church would be a place where the gospel grace of Jesus is seen palpably that you'd, you'd be able to cut it in the air with a knife. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing. Praise God from whom